This is Bennett Cyphers from EFF, and you're listening to Carrie Parker's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and this is episode 222, a nice uh, round even number, uh, for May 31st, 2021. And being May 31st, I hope you're all having a fun and relaxing Memorial Day, those of you in the US of A. We've got part one today of a really interesting interview, something I've been trying to get somebody on the air about for months, literally months since this was announced, uh, and that is Google's Flock more about that in just a minute. Before that, though, I've got a few things to update you on. First of all, the super cool once secret project for the official Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons D20 Challenge coin is going quite well. I have already signed up some new patrons and I've already sent out the first round of coins. Now, the first round of coins went to people who have been our patrons for some time already. So here's the thing. As you recall from last week, I was having some issues with Patreon trying to set up my campaign. The linchpin of the whole promotion was getting people to sign up for a year in advance and giving them a discount to do so. Uh, so that I could <laughs> honestly be sure that I cover the cost of the coin uh, before I ship it out. And it makes so I could send it out right away. I wanted to send the coins immediately. Unfortunately, uh, Patreon apparently has some sort of secret qualifications uh, to become a creator that can have annual billing as an option. And I have pleaded my case and have come up wanting. I <laughs> It's not published. There's no... Published criteria for who's allowed to do this. I guess you just have to ask and they say yes or no. And maybe I'm just not big time enough for that. I I don't know. But I, I can no longer do that. So here's plan B. And I posted on this on Patreon as I said I would. Uh, but for those of you who haven't seen it, here's plan B. If you sign up as a patron at the $5 level or the $10 level, after your second payment posts, uh, then you will qualify for the coin. Honestly, I, I had to wait at least that long to just kind of cover the cost of the coins. Because uh, at the $5 at the $5 level, you'll get one coin. At the $10 level, you will get two coins uh, in your choice of colors or metal finishes, as it were. And I'll just have to hope that you stay on as patrons since I, <laughs> since Patreon won't let me do what I wanted to do. But, you know, I don't want to make you wait any longer than that. When you join, uh, you, you'll they'll take your first payment right away. And so the second payment should, I believe, be like July 1st, which is right after the end of the campaign. So... Hopefully, the way that will work is if you join in this month of June, then uh, your coin will be able to ship uh, right after the 1st of July. But it will be the 1st of August at the very latest. So again, this campaign for uh, getting a challenge coin for becoming a patron at either the $5 Castle Guard level or at the $10 Knight Errant level will last probably just till the end of June. Or I guess until the coins run out. There are only 100 of these coins on the planet. I suppose if for some reason it's wildly popular... Uh, I can try to get another round of coins minted. But uh, anyway, for sure, there's only 100 right now. And there's only so many of each color type, too. So if you've got a hard preference on copper versus gold versus silver, you want to act soon to make sure you get the color choice you want. So things are going fine. I'm, I've already gotten several new patrons at the Knight Errant level. And part of the bonus for being at that level is I will give you a shout out on the air and I will let you record a tagline for the show it to use as intro, like I had one today. So that's super fun, and I hope uh, everybody takes advantage of that. And I will start that by proclaiming the knighthood of a patron who's been around for quite some time, who just recently bumped up to the brand new knight errant level. So 
Fanfare, please. My first Knight Errant shout-out goes to Dean Thomas Keith from Texas. So thanks so much, and welcome to my roundtable, Dean. We've all been chatting on this on Discord, which has been a lot of fun, too. So that's that's honestly one of my favorite parts of this whole thing, is being able to directly interact with you guys. So uh, that is one of the benefits for all patrons, is access to uh, the Discord channels. All right, so moving on. I think I mentioned this last week, but I can't remember. But I got the tables flipped on me. I was actually the interviewee for the Malwarebytes Lock and Code podcast. Turns out that David Reese, uh, who runs that podcast, is somebody I've known for some time. And he I interviewed him, first of all, when he was at EFF. And I've interviewed him since he's been at Malwarebytes as well. Anyway, we got to talking and thought it'd be fun to flip the script. And I was interviewed on his show. And it was a lot of fun. We talked about dark patterns, which is, as you know, one of the topics I'm really hot on. So uh, it was a great conversation. And if you want to just uh, go searching on Malwarebytes Lock and Code you find it or check the show notes. I've got a link to that particular podcast. You should definitely check it out. It was a lot of fun. Uh, no new podcast or book reviews, so nothing to read there. I do have a couple quick important news items I want to talk about before I introduce the the, uh, the show today. Uh, first of all, if you are uh, a Mac person and you've got a Mac computer, a laptop, or a desktop, definitely make sure that you upgrade your operating system. There are fixes in there that are patching some actively exploited vulnerabilities, so make sure that you get updated. And if you haven't already turn on automatic updates. And finally, uh, I'll be talking about this when we do our new show in a couple of weeks, but the National Health Service in the UK is planning to start sharing medical records with outside third parties. Now, they're supposedly going to make it anonymous, and we'll, again, we'll talk about this in the new show, but you have until June 23rd to opt out, um, and you have to fill out some special form. There's a link to the form in the show notes. Actually, we'll have you download some sort of a doc file, which which is always a little scary. I have not done it myself. If you want to check that file before you open it, you might run it through virus total online just to make sure that someone didn't compromise the doc file. But uh, I would certainly recommend that you do this and opt out. All right. So let's set up today's interview. We're going to be talking about this new technology from Google and third-party cookies, which have been used to track you around the web for many, many, many years now. I've gotten so popular and have gotten a lot of bad press. And because of that, people are shutting it down. Um, in particular, the Safari browser and Firefox browser block them now by default. And so Google, who is an advertising company and has seen the writing on the wall, has <laughs> been forced to come out and say, oh yeah, good idea. We're going we're gonna to block those too, but we're not going to do that until we have something to replace it with. And uh, they are arguing that what they're replacing it with is privacy respecting and what we're going to find out today as we talk with Benefit Ciphers from the EFF is that it's not really that privacy protecting or not good enough. So uh, what I want to do to kind of introduce this topic, though, is Google published a little white paper on what they call the sensitivity of cohorts. And it kind of explains what we're going to be talking about today. And there's some kind of mumbo jumbo in here. And don't worry about it too much because we're going to talk about it some in the podcast. But I thought it would be good to start with Google's short explanation of what they're doing and why they're doing it. So this is from Google. It says, today, many publishers are able to leverage interest-based advertising as a source of funding. This revenue stream allows them to offer content free of charge to their users. Now I've got to stop right there. And, and <laughs> it's, you don't have to track users to make money on ads. And again, we'll talk about that today, but it just, I, I couldn't let that just go without challenge. 
So back to their blog, it says, contrary to contextual ads, interest-based ads leverage information about a user's interests to decide what ads to show them. Interest-based advertising enables an overall better ad experience for users because the user is presented with more relevant ads than traditional run of network ads. Also for advertisers who can better reach their target audience and for publishers who are allowed to earn more money on average per interest-based ad than a non-relevant ad. In fact, multiple studies from academia and industry have consistently demonstrated that personalized advertising can account for 50 to 65% of a publisher's revenue. And as you might guess, we are going to be <laughs> talking about that claim today. In order to accurately serve interest-based ads, ad tech companies use third-party cookies to generate user interest profiles. Thus, the planned deprecation of third-party cookies in Chrome puts interest-based ads and the revenue publishers depend on at risk. No, it doesn't. <clears throat> Sorry. To ensure that publishers continue to have options to fund their services, Chrome has proposed the Flock API, and that's spelled F-L-O-C, which stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts, and of course, API is our favorite application programming interface. Chrome has proposed the Flock API as a way to enable interest-based advertising in a private way. At a very high level, the Flock API assigns users to a cohort in such a way that users in the same cohort have similar interests. An ad tech company can then use the API to advertise to an entire cohort. It has been shown that the Flock API allows ad tech companies to enable interest-based advertising without generating fine-grained browsing profiles of users. The Flock API achieves this by generating k-anonymous cohorts. That is, the API returns a cohort number shared by at least k users. This idea can be used as an anonymous replacement of a third-party cookie, allowing ad tech companies to build cohort interest profiles without knowing the identity of a user. While K-anonymity, especially for large values of K, protects users from re-identification, it is well known in the privacy community that this privacy notion can be vulnerable to so-called homogeneity attacks. In the context of the Flock API, a homogeneity attack corresponds to a scenario where all users that share a cohort number also share a sensitive attribute. For instance, a cohort that consists only of users who visited a website about a rare medical condition. By revealing the cohort of a user, the Flock API may inadvertently also reveal that a user has investigated that rare medical condition. At a very high level, we want to make sure that no company, including Google, can correlate a particular cohort with any sensitive attribute. The purpose of this paper is to discuss the privacy protections that are needed in order to prevent this type of privacy leakage and what Chrome is doing to prevent homogeneity attacks from happening in the initial Flock API origin trial, which we're going to be talking about today. As the implementation of the Flock API is the responsibility of each browser or software that supports the API, the description of the protections here describe only the implementations by Chrome and not necessarily characteristics that are intrinsic to the API itself. That is a very key point. The sensitive cohort detection described below considers the risk that certain cohorts might imply an elevated likelihood of sensitive browsing behavior. There is a separate threat, not considered in this analysis, of an attacker attempting to guess browsing history based on the details of how cohorts are created. This risk should be mitigated by other measures designed to ensure that the map from browsing history to cohorts is sufficiently lossy, even when conditioned on other information a site might have about one of its visitors. Such measures warrant further investigation, but are out of the scope of this document. Okay, so again... Lots there that might be a little hard to understand, but we are going to get into that today in our interview. 
couple more quick definitions. Uh, first of all, when you're talking about ads, uh, one of the metrics that you use to determine how many people have seen an ads is called impressions. And all an impression means is that an ad was shown. It doesn't mean you clicked it. doesn't mean you even necessarily looked at it, but it's an instance of an ad that showed up on your web browser, uh, on an app that you're using or whatever. That's what it means when we say an impression for an ad. We also talk about super cookies very briefly and tangentially. A super cookie is kind of a different way to store cookie type information. It's not truly a cookie in the regular sense of that word. It's actually stickier than a regular cookie, which is why it's called a super cookie. It's basically kind of abusing your browser in other ways to get it to store information about you that it can retrieve later. And finally, we talk about the W3C, that is the WWWC or World Wide Web Consortium. Uh, this is a group of people that are basically making the standards for the web. All right, so with all those definitions under our belt and that introduction from Google, let's talk with Bennett Cyphers from the EFF about what all of this really means for you. Bennett Cyphers is a staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. He's helped develop the Tracker Blocking Extension Privacy Badger, which I recommend often, and uh, covers consumer privacy and competition issues. Uh, welcome back to the show, Bennett. Thanks so much, Kerry. Quick correction, I did not self-develop Privacy Badger. I was one of several developers who has worked on it, and a lot of people have done a lot more than I did, but I'm happy to have been a part of it. I think it's a great project. Absolutely, yeah. That's, uh, it's, it, it's a cool tool. It's one of the few that I always recommend that people install. I've been dying to talk about the subject and you are the perfect person to talk to about it. And that is Google's new project for replacing third-party tracking cookies. And it's gotten a lot of press. It's, it's right as we speak, they're trialing it in some secret <laughs> project that you, know, you can't, I don't think you can choose to be in or out of, but it's really fascinating. It's, there's a lot of nuance to it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into that with you today. So before we get started, though, and, and one thing that all of this is premised on, and, and I want to just get it out of the way before we get into the details, is all of this is premised to me on two assumptions, which I'm not sure hold. But the first of which is that behavior-based ads are somehow more valuable than context-based ads. And of course, by that, mm -hmm. I mean that the ads that are served up to you because you have an interest in something uh, that you've expressed that way by visiting websites or searching on something is more valuable than the ones that are just because you happen to be in the demographically right place at the right time, or maybe you just searched on Adidas. And so I'm going to show you an ad for Nike on the side or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, how, how true is that statement? I mean, all this is based on what, on, on, you know, these ads being so much more valuable that that's why it's worth doing the tracking. Yeah. So high level, I think they are more valuable. There's a lot of evidence that behavioral ads make more money for the ecosystem per impression. But the important things you got to ask are more valuable than what and more valuable to whom. You're right. So yes. the first part of that is, you know, what are we comparing this to? There are several studies that kind of get cited a lot when this conversation happens. Um, you've probably seen them in like the literature around Flock and some of Google's blog yeah. posts and they'll say like, oh, you know, these pull in 50% more per impression, 60% mm. more per impression. And, you know, these studies are good science, but a lot of times what they do is they'll just take, you know, they'll look at an ad exchange and they'll be like, all right, we have a lot of impressions coming in. Some of them have cookies and some of them don't, or some of them have cookies and some of them have cookies that say, I'm opted out. You can't legally use my, my data to serve this ad impression. And in all those studies, the vast majority of the impressions going through those ad exchanges have cookies. 
because that's just, you know, the way the ecosystem works. And kind of unsurprisingly, when you look at it that way, it's like, uh, all right, the system is designed to work with cookies. All these ad tech firms have put all their money into optimizing for behavioral ads because that is the vast majority mm. of traffic that they see. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where the arms race in <sighs> right. technology has been for the past decade or two. Right. And yeah, as it turns out, you know, like the systems that are optimized to make money off of the vast majority of impressions that they see in this one particular way make more money <laughs> when they see cookied impressions than when they see the smaller minority of, you know, cookie list or opt out impressions. Mm. And so, you know, there's this one, there's this one study that uh, has been bandied about a little bit that I was just reading this morning, actually. Uh, it's from Johnson, Triver and Dew from 2019. Uh, it's called Consumer Privacy Choice in Online Advertising, Who Opts Out and At What Cost to the Industry. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they look at the DAA's Ad Choices Program, which I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's this, you see an ad on the web often there's a little like eye in the top corner or the bottom corner, I forget. If you click on it, it takes you to this page that's like, you have choices. <sighs> click here to opt out. And what it'll do is it'll send individual impressions to like a hundred and something different advertisers. And each one of them will drop a separate cookie in your browser. And it only works for like half of them. And then you have to remove all your ad blockers and remove all of your like cookie controls if you want them to honor your opt-in. Anyway, it's a, it's a mess. It's a self-regulatory system that's 10 years old. Mm. It really sucks. Nobody uses it. And so, right. Kind of like Do Not but, Track was, right? Yeah. It's like, it's it was the kind of bad faith answer to Do Not <laughs> right. Track, in my opinion. Like, Do Not Track was gaining momentum around that time. And like, the Obama administration was talking about like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. And the ad industry was like, whoa, wait, we got this. Right, right. And here's our solution. Right. And so unsurprisingly, like, one of the findings of the study is that 0.23% of American ad impressions are opted out in this way. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. right. one in 400 people actually uses this program. Right. Anyway, that's <laughs> the point is what they do in the study is they compare the cost per impression of people who haven't opted out to the cost per impression of people who have opted out through the system. And they find that on average, the impressions of non opted out people of, you know, people who are being behaviorally targeted are worth about 50% more um, on the open exchange. So that's advertisers are paying about 50% more to see those people. So let me stop, let me stop right there. So it's, it's worth more because they say it's worth more, but what is it worth more because it's actually making them more money? Right. That's a great question. So the flip side of that is, all right, you're an advertiser. You got $1,000 to spend, right? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty well established in the literature that if you if you buy 1000 targeted, like behaviorally targeted impressions and a thousand untargeted impressions, the targeted impressions are going to get you more clicks, about twice as many clicks. Okay. But then if you look at the cost of each one of those, mm -hmm. the targeted impressions cost about twice as much mm. uh, because, because of course they do. Because right. like the, the, the ad tech companies, if they have more valuable inventory, they're going to sell for more. That's how it works. Right. And so, you know, if, if you're an advertiser, I've seen a couple, a couple of like, uh, studies like informal studies from from ad tech people who say you know if you're an advertiser it doesn't really matter what you're buying because you know the price is going to even out right like they're mm -hmm. gonna they're gonna charge you for the for the value that you're getting right so like advertisers in the end you know don't really care they're just gonna they spend their money and you know the the market the invisible hand kind of right. evens things out in the background and you know they're gonna get approximately the same amount of value no matter what they spend it on
So this goes back to your other point of who's it valuable to, to whom it's valuable to, and that is to Google and Facebook, not necessarily the people that they're selling it to, because in the end, the people that they're buying the ads may not be getting their money's worth, but sure as hell <laughs> Google and Facebook are. Google and Facebook are getting their money's worth. Yeah. And so the last piece of this, this whole discussion is like, all right, well, you know, Google and Facebook, what they always say is, you know, this is keeping the open web alive. Like right. if you take away behavioral targeting, all your favorite websites are going to die, right? Because like the, the publishers are the ones who, you know, we're doing this for the publishers. We're not doing this because we make absurd amounts right. of money on targeting. We're doing this because it's needed to keep the publishers in business. But then, and this is, this is the hardest piece to figure out, I think, because there's very little data on it. And like the people who have this data are Google and Facebook. Right. Um, and they're, they're, they're like Google released like a two page thing a couple of years ago. It was like, oh, trust us. The publishers make way more money. But it's like, you know, they don't release any methodology. There's no way to reproduce it. You just have to, you do have to trust them. And there was another study by Equisti in, in 2019 where they actually worked with publishers and tried to like, I don't remember all the details. You can go look it up. But they, they the top level thing they found was that publisher revenue with cookied targeted impressions only goes up about 4%. Yeah, um, I saw that one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and you know, that's been, Google has said like, oh, that's not quite right. But their response is, well, why? Because you have to trust us. <laughs> right, right. And anyway, but if you if you look across the board at like, all right, how much, you know, for any ad impression, how much money actually goes to the publisher? It's around 30 or 40 percent. There's the vast majority of the money that advertisers spend is going to the middle corpse, to the ad tech providers. Mm. And, you know, my pet theory is that the reason for that is because like, these ad tech corps have have spent ungodly amounts of money doing crazy advanced like machine learning and like tracker technology and they're getting in this arms races with uh, mm. ad blockers and right. and browsers and stuff and if they weren't engaged in this behavior that was actively hostile to consumers <laughs> and that depended on like you know crazy advanced machine learning predictive technology like you know hiring PhDs to to do this targeting for you then it wouldn't cost so much money and maybe more of that share would be going to the publishers. But right. you know, that's just the theory. Well, and I, I think that actually segues perfectly into today's topic because I mean, so it's, it's kind of like regulations in, in the industry, you know, when the car industry really fought it, you know, the, the, the regulations for emission standards, but in the end it drove them all and it leveled the playing field. They all had to play by the same rules and they all had to come up with some really amazing technologies and they did which made cars better in other ways too and so it, you know it, it, it can be done but if you don't have the incentive to do it you're not going to do it yeah exactly no I, I think it's it's totally like that and it's the industry has spent the past 15 20 years or so just hyper optimizing for this one way of doing business which yeah. is targeting ads and it's just sort of like accepted as fact that contextual right. ads don't make as much money and so they don't right put any effort into it. And so they won't make as much money, you know, right. it's like, and all these studies are like, if you're trying to figure out whether gas cars really go a lot faster and then you're like, well, all right, we're going to take half the cars on the road right now. And we're going to fill them up with vegetable oil and, <laughs> Oh look, the gas cars go way faster. It's like, no, you can't do that. You right. need to give it time to develop. You need to actually like put resources into developing a viable alternative right. and then see how that works. But that's never going to happen until, you know, regulation forces their hand. 
Right. So, again, perfect segue into our topic today because that's kind of what's happening, right? So, it kind of like we, you know, pop-up ads were annoying, and, and but they were visible, and people, you know, browser makers said, okay, we're, we'll let you block those. You know, third-party cookie tracking has been under the radar for a long time because it's not really seen, but it's bubbled up, you know, thanks to reporting like what we're doing and others have doing, you guys have done. Um, and so now browsers are offering to block that too. And so, kind of like the other thing with the DAA or, you know, Google or whatever's coming up with, okay, the cat's out of the bag. You guys, we know you don't like third-party tracking, but let's come up with, you know, now let's actually put effort into coming up with something that supposedly supposedly meets the privacy standards and still allows them to track, which is why we're here today. So, yeah, let's let's dive into that. I guess, first of all, and, and I've talked about this on the show before, but just real quickly, you know, where are we now? Like, what? How does third-party tracking work in general, how do, how was how was the current status quo working, and why are we now talking about getting rid of them? Sure. So the the status quo, which is kind of, you know, we're sort of in a transitional period right now, but I'll say the status quo three years ago, what everyone thinks of as like you know the way things work is, at least on the web, cookies are everywhere. Third party cookies are everywhere. You you visit a website, there it loads up code from like ten or twelve different advertisers. Each one of those drops a cookie in your browser. And then every time you visit a site that like uh, talks to any one of those advertisers, they get a request from your browser. It has the cookie that identifies you and they can say like, oh, we see this person on this page at this time from this location. And over time, you know, over weeks and months, they build up these behavioral profiles of you, which, you know, it starts off with like raw browsing history and then they can do machine learning and analysis to say like, okay, well, this person has this kind of browsing history, so they're probably interested in these things. They might want to buy these things. Um, they probably have this income, these demographics, et cetera. And all of that information is like associated with your cookie ID. Um, and so then every time you you visit a site that serves ads, it'll start off, it'll kick off this auction. It's called real-time bidding. Mm. And what happens is this uh, a supply-side platform, the first link in the chain, will pull your cookie uh, maybe even allow other other advertisers to drop cookies in your browser so that they can see you know who you are and identify you for themselves. And they'll say like, all right, here's the person we have. What do you want to bid for a chance to show this person an ad? And then all these advertisers will kind of scramble. They have the, they have uh, you know their models and these automated systems set up that will, in a couple fractions of a second, look at a cookie, identify the person associated with that cookie, decide how valuable that impression is going to be and then decide what ad to serve if they want to serve an ad and they'll send that back to the supply side platform. They'll say, okay, this group bid the most money. They get to show an ad to this person and then it'll load up, you know, the ad code from whoever won the auction. And this is all completely automated and happening. All in completely real, in real automated. Time. Yep. It's all set up ahead of time. That whole process happens in, you know, a few milliseconds. And so like round trip time between loading up the page and you actually seeing the ad might be half a second. And that happens for dozens of ads per page on every single page that you visit. Sometimes those pages will refresh and serve mm. new ads while you're still on the same page. <laughs> you know, and the same thing happens on mobile apps too, right? There, the basis of identity isn't cookies. It's the, the mobile ad identifier, which I, I don't know if you want to get into that. That's a whole other bag of worms, but it's, it's yes. basically the same system. We have, but through you know various means, come as a side to learn that this is happening and have gotten creeped out when we... You know, we search Google on one thing and we go to some completely other different site and all of a sudden, well, many other sites and all of a sudden we're seeing ads for that thing we searched on. And so, you know, those kind of incidents are causing the creep factor to go up and people are saying, hey, wait a minute. And mm -hmm. and so then browser makers like Firefox and Safari from Apple 
have started to block these, correct? Like by default. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. I think Apple was the first one to roll it out. Well, first big one. Brave has been doing it for years. Um, Vivaldi, they're, they're smaller, like privacy, niche privacy browsers, I would say, that have been doing this for a while. But Safari was the, the sort of a tipping point where, you know, they have tens or hundreds of millions of users and they were like, you know, actually, we're just going to block these cookies by default. Right. And so Chrome, you know, obviously one of the reasons that Google made Chrome certainly was because it's just one more avenue to collect information on people. And it was a resounding <laughs> success. It's like the 60%, mm-hmm. you know, 60% of the planet uses Chrome for their browser. And so they obviously have not blocked third-party cookies by default, though they do give the user the option, which, of course, the tyranny of the default, no one, no user, you know, hardly yeah. anyone will go and make that change, as we've seen, which they knew very well. Mm-hmm. But now the writing's on the wall, and, you know, the third-party cookies are going away, and mm-hmm. you know, everyone's blocking them, and Google has now got on the bandwagon and claims to be, okay, you know what, we're, gonna, we're also going to block third-party cookies. But given that this is something that we do for a living – we want to straddle the fence. We want to come up with a new way of doing it that somehow preserves privacy and yet still maintains these, the, this new way of doing things. So <laughs> how are they planning to do that exactly? Yeah, so they've, they rolled out this whole suite of uh, proposals, which they're calling the privacy sandbox. And so it starts with, you know, yeah, they're going to block third-party cookies by default. They're going to block all kinds of other super cookie-ish identifiers or like basically any way that any random advertiser who gets loaded up on a web page can identify the user or the browser that they're interacting with. Google's planning to, to block those, of course. Yeah, this is exactly what Firefox and Safari have been doing for a while now. And then they're saying, okay, yeah, this is our plan to you know block these identifiers, but we don't want to do that until we can come up with a way to preserve targeted advertising, to, to keep letting advertisers do behavioral targeting, but just without all the other bad parts of behavioral targeting. <laughs> they're, they're, they're kind of saying like, okay, yeah, we recognize people are upset about this. And they're mostly upset because of this creep factor that, you know, any random third party advertiser can like build up this big profile of them and store it on their server and they'll never know and they can sell that data and abuse it for this, that and the other thing. So we're going to stop that like rampant collection of data, but we want to keep the core business model of you visit a bunch of sites and your browsing history reveals something about you, about your behavior and about what you're likely to, to buy or be interested in. Um, and advertisers can use information about your behavior to serve you ads. So they're saying like this business model of, of behavioral targeting is so core to the web that we can't in good conscience you know, <laughs> take it away without replacing it with something new. And so that's that's where all these... They have all these proposals stemming from that. And so the big one that we've been talking about a lot is called FLOC. It stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts. And that was, and a, that was a tortured retronym, I'm sure, because all, it was, all, yeah. all, this, all, all the underlying technologies have some sort of a weird bird reference, right? Yes, they are all birds. There are dozens and dozens of birds. There's, <laughs> it started off with pigeon, which became turtle dove, which became fledge. And there's flock, there's uh, sparrow. Parrot, pelican, myrrh, cowbird, <laughs> spurfowl, teetar, oh fledge, swan, spectacle, parakeet. I'm just reading off a list now. There's a lot of them. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and other companies have joined the fray now, too. This is all happening. Okay, so the other thing that happened was Google, when Google announced this, they said, oh, and we want these to be open standards that everyone can use. So we're going to go to the W3C, which is the like kind of collaborative standards-making body for the web. Right. And we're going to propose these things there, and we hope 
other people will join the discussion and, and help us approve these things. Since then, there have been a bunch of other mostly ad tech companies, as well as, you know, Facebook and Microsoft, which are ad tech companies that also do other things. And they've been, you know, coming up with their own bird names for other kind of niche targeting tech that they think they need to keep their business models alive. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the details of this. And they're, and they've published papers on these to get into some seriously, you know, scientific, you know, T this, K that, you know, right. uh, you know yep. scientific <laughs> terms, which, you know, it's somewhat reassuring that it, it, it seemed to be trying to make this scientific. But what what are the key underpinnings of this thing? How How do they get away with somehow keeping track of what you're doing in a way that allows them to target ads and yet somehow not figure out who you are and what your particular proclivities might be. Right. So the, the big thing that's changing with flock in particular is that, so right now ad tech companies will use cookies to collect bits of your browsing history and they'll, they'll assemble kind of a complete ish browsing history on their own servers. And they do analysis on that on their own servers. And, you know, you don't see any of this, like, all you see is like, oh, your browser made a connection to this to this company mm-hmm. and they collected data about you and then you don't know what they do with the data behind the scenes. So with Flock, what's going to happen is your browser is just going to track your history on its own. I mean, which it already does. It saves your history. Mm-hmm. And then your browser is going to perform analysis and once a week or so, it's going to run this Flock algorithm on on your history and sort you into a behavioral group. This is where the the sort of black magic comes in. It's it's very mm-hmm. unclear how this right. is gonna, you know, it, it works one way right now. Google has said they're gonna experiment with a bunch of other ways of doing it, but the, the essence of it is that, you know, Google wants to use your browsing history to have your browser assign you a label which reveals meaningful information about how you behave and what you're gonna be interested in, and then share that label with everyone you interact with on the web. Right. So so. All right, so let me see if I got this straight. So basically, what they're doing is they're, and that's you said a couple of key things there. First of all, this is all happening on the browser, so this is not being reported to some server in the sky. So part of the privacy aspect of this is that the the munging, the the algorithms that are being run, the the, the part that really knows everything, stays with you on your browser, and as a which mm-hmm. is different than as you just laid out, which is different than the way third party cookies work. So the mm-hmm. browser, Chrome in particular in this case, is taking your history and kind of doing some fun, fancy magic on it to sort people into one of, and we'll talk about this in a minute, some number of bins of people uh, of with, with certain kinds of interests, and then distilling that down into a bin ID. And then that ID is what they give up to allow people to target ads, ads because I know people in this bin, I want to target, I want to target my ads to people in these kinds of bins and Oh, that's one of my bins. I want to send this person an ad. And then, then the bidding starts and then it goes back to whatever the normal thing is. Right. Yep. That's exactly it. Okay. So after reading on this and hearing various things, it's obviously some of the things that first come to mind is, well, you know, how, how generic am I, you know, it, you, it's got to be specific enough that they know enough about me to target me in a meaningful way, but not specific enough that they could say, oh, that's that's Carrie in that bin, right? So, Or that's Bennett right. or, or Bennett's browser or however you want to look at it. But uh, how many people are they putting me in with? Uh, how often do these IDs change? There's, there's all sorts of details to this that seem to be kind of crucial to preserving my privacy. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so again, this is all subject to change. Google has made it very right, clear. Sure. But um they did roll out this test, and for the test, there are so they've set a minimum cutoff 
of 2,000 people per bin. Okay. Which, you know, that's kind of a lot. But yeah. you yeah. Know, Chrome has close to, I think it's 2 billion users, some, some <laughs> right. absurd fraction of the human race. Um, and so <laughs> right now there are over 33,000 possible bins you could be sorted into. Okay. And the way those bins are assembled is kind of random right now. So it's like it's using this technique called sim hash, which is just kind of like, mashes all of your browsing history together and then puts you into a bin. It doesn't, it's, it's not even doing anything that sophisticated. It's just kind of like, <laughs> if, if you know how a hash works, it's, it's doing a, what's called a locally sensitive hash so that people who have very similar browsing histories are very likely to be in the same bin. And people who have kind of similar browsing histories are likely to be in adjacent bins. Right. There's no other real, you know, smart sorting going on beyond that. So like the way I, the way I think about that when I read about this is it's kind of like this. So if they're trying to target middle-aged white males who like football, um, yeah. you know, so maybe I go to ESPN and maybe someone else uh -huh. goes to Yahoo Fantasy Football or, or and someone else goes to Sports Illustrated. Uh -huh. For their purposes, those are all the same thing, right? So they're so they're all those kind of those types of sites are all kind of through, somehow through the magic of this, of this algorithm considered to be similar. Does that sound about right? I think that's what their goal is, but I, I don't right. think that's actually how it works right now. <laughs> right, but, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, the, the idea is that, you know, you won't need to, like, looking at one of these bins, you won't be able to look at someone's bin and say, like, oh, okay, I know they went to this, that, and the other site. Right. What you'll be able to do is be like, all right, I know people in this bin tend to do these kinds of things, and we'll get into how you would know that in a minute. So, therefore, like, you know, people in this bin are, like, overwhelmingly this kind of person are interested in these kinds of mm. things. And so I can, I can target ads to them. So the next question I got to ask before we go too much further, is this, because this is a Google thing, is this, mm -hmm. is this only for Chrome? I mean, so it all, all happens in the browser. So is this, I mean, Chrome is currently the most popular browser on the planet. So, you know, there's that, but what about all the other browsers? Like, does this affect them too? Are they, are they, are they going to be able to get any information from them? What about the Chromium based browser? Like, cause Chrome is based on Chromium, which is mm -hmm. under the underpinnings for a lot of other ones. Like, you know, I think Vivaldi Opera, I think even Brave and Edge. Mm -hmm. So will they by default then be participating in this as well? And then on the flip side, does that hurt or disadvantage any of the other browser makers in any way? Like, is this, if this only works on Chromium-based browsers, are Firefox and Safari somehow going to be shut out of this new ecosystem? How, how does that play out here? Yeah, uh, good question. So it's a little bit unclear right now. So as you said, they're building this into Chromium, not just into Chrome. And Chromium is is yeah, the, the base for all these other um, all these other browsers. Right now, the way it's set up is, so the code is in Chromium, but it has to be like activated. It's kind of dormant right now. And so it's only activated in Chrome okay. right now for this trial that they're doing. So right now, if you use Vivaldi, Brave, Edge, whatever, to the best of my knowledge, none of those other browsers um, have this enabled right gotcha. now. Okay. But the code is kind of lurking there. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> and so so okay. like, you know, I, I, I don't want to make that sound sinister. It's like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the browser makers obviously you know, they know what they're doing and they would have to make a conscious choice to enable Flock in their own browsers. Okay, um, all right. Even if the code is already there and Google is hoping that they will, but it's just sort of going to be a matter of flipping a switch for anyone who's running, running Chromium. You know, Edge could turn this on tomorrow if they wanted. Okay. It's just, they just have to decide whether they want to. And so what about Firefox and Safari? And what, I guess because if they make this an open standard, I guess for some reason, Fire, you know, Apple and Mozilla buy into this whole system and think, okay, this is a good compromise. They could theoretically implement this as well. 
Totally, yeah. So this is an open standard. This is Google's whole plan. Is like they want to, I think they want to use Chrome to sort of tip the market right. and like get widespread adoption from advertisers and you know publishers. And then they're hoping that the other browser makers are going to decide to implement it on their own. Because yeah, everything is open source code. It's published. Like they're writing white papers. Um, they're trying to make it as easy as possible for other browsers to adopt this. Gotcha. Okay, so the other obviously important question here is what sorts of information are going to be used to derive my cohort, my bin? Um, what things are going to be allowed? Because obviously there's some obvious things that you'd hope that they would exclude, but let's get into details. Like what what is what information will not be considered or you know, sexual orientation I would think would be out, health information I'd hope would be out, race, income. You know, Google calls it sensitive content. Do we know yeah. what that is? Like, what is and will not go into determining my bin? Yes and no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we know. So right now, the way that it works is it's only based on the the sites that you visit. The way that it works is they take a bunch of data, they run the algorithm, it spits stuff out, and then Google has sort of a proprietary way of calling out what they consider to be sensitive. Hmm. Uh, cohorts. So like, you know, everyone's going to get sorted into a cohort and then Google's going to perform some analysis and be like, oh, this, that, and the other cohort are too sensitive in some way. So we're just going to block those. And we know they've described how they're going to do that, but they haven't shown like, you know, the actual categories that they're going to be looking for or the websites that they're going to be looking for. So yeah, as a baseline, you know, all your browsing history is going to be, well, most of your browsing history, it's like every site that you visit that serves ads or loads ad related code is the way that it works right now is going to be like funneled into this kind of black boxy algorithm, <laughs> right? It's going to spit out a cohort. And then the way that it works right now is for the test, everyone who has Chrome sync turned on is going to share their, their cohort along with their browsing history with Google. And then Google is going to look at, you know, all those millions of people's cohorts next to their browsing history and try and figure out, all right, which of these cohorts are too correlated with, a quote-unquote sensitive category and then they're just going to send a signal back to all those people's browsers and their browsers are not going to share that cohort they're going to share the empty cohort so I, I can go into a little more detail if you want on that oh yeah sure i mean if you've got more detail i'd love to hear it because i think this is important yeah sure so that chrome released a white paper a couple weeks ago describing their their whole plan for this yeah so so like i said that they're, they're looking for quote unquote sensitive categories. And this is, they've said it's based on, you know, what they already do with Google ads. Like if you go into Google's ad, like cookie based ad system right now and you try and target someone, you're like, oh, I want to reach people with a history of, you know, alcohol abuse or something like that. Uh, like gambling problem. Right, exactly. I want to, I, I only want to target people like gambling addicts. No, <laughs> you can't, you can't do that right now. Right now. <laughs> or at least you have to, you have to do it in a roundabout way. You can't do it right, 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 right. Yes. Uh, and so the, it's based on those categories. And what, what they do is they, they go through every website on the internet and they assign for any one of those websites that they think is affiliated with a sensitive category in some way, you know, whether that's like some sort of addiction or hardship or trauma or sexual orientation or religion, mm -hmm. if the site is affiliated with that, it will get a label associated with whatever sensitive category it's affiliated with. Again, we don't know the full list of sensitive categories. And then they will run just this sort of, you know, regression analysis on, so they have all the raw data about, you know, which cohorts are affiliated with which browsing histories. 
and they'll run regressions to see like, all right, does this cohort correlate with sites that have a particular sensitive category label mm -hmm. to too high a degree? So it's like, you know, if 1% of all visits of all people, you know, in their sample have visited sites that are affiliated with like Islam mm -hmm. and then they look and they say like, all right, in this particular cohort, 20% of, you know, the people have visited one of these sites that we affiliate with Islam, then they'll be like, all right, that's, that's too high a correlation. We're just going to block okay. out this cohort. Okay. And then they will send the signal back to the browser with a list of blocked cohorts. Mm. And then all the people who are sorted into one of those cohorts, cohorts, their browser will share the empty cohort, it's called, which is kind of a signal in itself. So right. if you're in one of these sensitive cohorts, you will be sharing out a signal that says, hi, I'm in a sensitive cohort. <laughs> I won't tell you which one, but just know that I'm sensitive somehow. Right. So yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. So there's two things that jumped out of me as you were talking about this that are crucial because it's so many, whenever you get into the weeds on some of these, you're talking all the technical stuff. And I got it, I read that same white paper. And I, but at the end of it, you gotta you gotta still look past it because there's a couple of key things that that we gotta remember. First of all, it could change, as you've been uh, saying multiple times. This whole thing is just a proposal; it could change. Second, currently Google, even though they are ruling some things out, Google still knows these things <laughs> or can know these yeah. things. They're just choosing yeah. out of their own goodness of heart, what they're going to try to not share. Second, yeah. Google still gets to decide what those categories are and how to label them. They could get them wrong. They could make exactly. a different decision that you would make. They might think something is not sensitive that you would think is sensitive. Yeah. And if all that wasn't enough, if this is an open standard, all this only comes down to whatever Google implements. I mean, if somebody else, and I'm actually, exactly. I'm shocked that we have not seen this yet, that somebody comes out with a honey browser, like the honey plugin, like, Hey, we'll pay you five bucks a month to use this browser. And in fact, when you use our browser, you get discounts on all these sites. Isn't that great? You know, yeah. and, and then behind the scenes, they're using the same technology to, they will track you for gambling habit. They will check your porn addiction. They will check your yeah. medical conditions. You know, all these things are, this paper presents everything in the greatest possible light. Like we're trying to do the right thing, but it doesn't mean it's what's going to actually happen either by mistake or by on purpose. Yeah, no, you're, you're a hundred percent right. pick it up with the answer to that question in next week's episode, the second part of my interview with Bennett Cyphers about Google's new Flock technology. All right, before we go, as always, I'd love to get more reviews for the podcast and or the book. And the best place to put those is on iTunes and Amazon, respectively. And as they come in, if I see them on, uh, if I see them on Amazon and iTunes, I will read them here on the air. Again, there's only about four weeks left to get your super cool, highly collectible, security-enhancing firewalls don't stop dragons challenge coin. I've got a link in the notes that'll give you more information on that, or you can just go to my blog and look for the recent article. Also, just FYI, I'm planning to make a short uh, making of video for my patrons about the coin and the website that goes with it, That's which I'll talk about in just a second. Uh, maybe I'll even get to that tomorrow. I'm trying to get that done soon, get that out there, because I thought it'd be, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that went into this. This took months, <laughs> months of months of planning to get this done, from coming up with the original idea, to finding someone to make the coin, to working with an artist to get the right design, getting the coins manufactured, and then coming up with a super cool new website so that people can use their coin to generate secure passphrases. And that site is d20key.com. D20 is it a D20 die, letter D, number two zero. Key, K-E-Y, d20key.com. And you don't actually you don't need a coin. You don't even need your own D20 dice. If you want, you can roll the virtual dice on the site right there and uh, it can generate totally random passphrases for you. And there's information on that website that tells you why and how you might want to do this. 
And actually, there's information on that site, too, about the challenge coin. So you can just go to d20key.com to get all the info there. So please help me spread the word on this. This campaign is a huge deal. Uh, I'm just, honestly, at this point, my first primary goal is just to cover my costs, just to break even on the podcast and everything. I'm almost halfway there, so uh, and we've made some good progress, but we still have a ways to go. And, you know, hey, if for some reason we managed to, through this campaign, to meet the goal, I'll definitely have to come up with some fun way to celebrate that. So go become a patron, or maybe just help me spread the word and find some other people who might want to do that. I would very, very much appreciate that. All right, everybody, that's it. Take care. Go get those vaccines. Help other people to get their vaccines as well. Stay safe out there. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.